All right. Well, you ready for the word? Uh, a couple of you are. Uh, <laughs> I really feel strongly about this week's message, and I was praying all week that uh, God would uh, send the people that are supposed to hear this message to church this morning, so you guys are supposed to be here. Uh, and so the title of my message today is The Question Above All Other Questions. This past Tuesday, Priscilla and I were invited by a friend to a dinner party at a home in the Upper East Side. Sound familiar? Those of you who were here last week. Uh, actually, that friend is here. Uh, my friend uh, John Lee, he is uh, the head of upper school at my kids' school, but he had a dinner party this past Tuesday that Priscilla and I attended. And during that dinner party, we heard the amazing testimony of a man named John Ramirez. Uh, John is an ex-high-ranking uh, satanic worshiper. He was actually the, the third highest-ranked uh, uh, Satan worshiper in New York City uh, during his heyday. And he told us that he sold his soul to the devil and cast all sorts of spells on all sorts of different people. And he, he went into detail on that. It's insane how the enemy, how the devil used him to do things like that. Uh, in fact, he was so into Satan worship that uh, during some of his rituals, he actually drank animal's blood. And when he couldn't get a hold of an animal, he would cut himself and drink his own blood. It's crazy. He worshiped the devil from age seven until age 35. At that age, at that time, he had an out-of-body experience where he says that he was taken into hell and he experienced the horrors of hell. And during that out-of-body experience, it, uh, Jesus showed up in hell and he got radically saved and transformed through that experience in his life. And after he got saved, he actually started attending Times Square Church and he was uh, mentored for several years by David Wilkerson. And now he travels the world telling people his story and, and how God delivered him from the evil and the demonic worship and, and the, the throes of... He, he, he called Satan daddy. Uh, and he even said that he had, he had encounters where he would talk to Satan himself uh, in an audible voice like, I am talking to you. The level of evil that he was in was absolutely crazy. But while I was listening to John's testimony, I was reminded that there is an absolute war going on for our souls. Yeah. I believed that, I knew that, but I needed to be in that, at that dinner party hearing his testimony because it just reminded me how serious the battle for our soul is. We might not be involved in Satanism and witchcraft, but the enemy is trying to steal from us. He's trying to kill us, and he's trying to destroy us and our families. He is trying to destroy the legacy that God would have us leave. When we're done, the legacy that we're supposed to leave, the devil wants to completely delete that and erase that and destroy that from our lives. The spirit world is real, and if you are a Christian and you are sold out to Jesus, there is a target on your back. But I have good news because we don't have to walk in fear because the Bible says that he that is in us is greater than he that is in the world. And so although there is evil all around us, all you have to do is turn on your television or, or click on CNN.com or FoxNews.com and you can see that there is evil all around us. But as believers, as sons and daughters of God, we can walk in victory. Amen. But here's the deal. 
Because there's people from all different walks of life and beliefs sitting in this room today. Whether you believe it or not, there is an unseen war going on around us in the spiritual realm. Okay? And we're all a part of that battle. We're all a part of that war. Do you think what's happening with this new abortion law in New York City to legalize late-term abortions is just a political thing? Because it's not. Do you, think, do you not think that the devil loves it when babies are killed before they ever have the chance to enter this world outside of the mother's womb? Do you not think that that puts a smile Regardless of your political affiliation, I'm not trying to be political here, but do you not think that would put a smile on the devil's face? That, that a baby's destiny is, is completely cut off before they ever get to even do anything? This is the work of the enemy to normalize the murder of innocent babies who are image bearers of the God of this universe. Amen? This is the work of the enemy to bring shame and condemnation to women who are sold on the false narrative that it's their right and choice to abort. Yet, the women that I know personally who have committed abortions, they have done this because they feel like they have no other choice. So regardless of your political preference or position, this is rooted in evil. In fact, my wife, my beautiful wife, is an abortion survivor herself. Her mom became pregnant with her at age 17 and felt like she had no other choice. She, she, she was confused. She was scared. She had family members telling her, you need to get rid of this baby. She was still in high school. She, had, you know, she was told, you have your whole life in front of you. And so she went from her South Texas place that she was living into Mexico, and she did, what, two saline injections on you? But thank God that he intervened and he did not allow the abortion to be successful. And now because of that, because God intervened, what the devil meant for evil, God meant for good, I get to do life and ministry with my wife now. Amen? But that's not the story of everybody. So I'm grateful for my wife. I'm grateful for what God did. Amen? Today, I'm going to talk to you about the question above all other questions. And we're going to be in the book of Mark, chapter number 8. Uh, if you have your Bibles or your phones, you can turn there, or it'll be up on the screen for you to read along. And I'm going to read, uh, start with verse 27. It says this, Jesus and his disciples left Galilee and went up to the villages near Caesarea Philippi. As they were walking along, he asked them, Who do people say... I am. Well, they replied, some say John the Baptist, some say Elijah, and others say you are one of the other prophets. Verse 29. Then he asked them, but who do you say I am? Peter replied, you are the Messiah. Jesus and his disciples were on their way to the villages of Caesarea Philippi in this passage. And this area was named by Herod the Great's son, and he named this area Caesarea Philippi, Caesarea after Caesar Augustus, and Philippi after himself. His name was Philip. And so this area was a tribute to both of these men. And on the way to Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples two questions. The first being, who do people say that I am? And the disciples answer Jesus and they say, well, some people say you're John the Baptist. Some people say you're Elijah and some say that you're another prophet, maybe Isaiah or Jeremiah or Elisha. 
And the people that Jesus is referring to here represent the world. And the world says that Jesus is a number of things depending on who you ask, right? Depending on who you ask, people will say that Jesus is a great philosopher, right? Some say that Jesus was a great activist who promoted nonviolence. That was his message. Uh, Some say that Jesus is a made-up fictional character who teaches us how to be a morally good person. And others will say that Jesus was simply a good man that lived a long time ago. Other religions will say that Jesus was a prophet. How many of you know that it's not enough to just know what other people are saying about Jesus? It's not enough to know what your parents or grandparents, who they say Jesus is. It's not enough to know who your pastor or spiritual leaders say Jesus is. It's not enough to know who your college professor says that Jesus is. Because then the text tells us that Jesus looks at them and he says, okay, okay, I know who other people are saying that I am, but who do you, who do you say that I am? And guys, this is the most important question that you will ever answer. This question is more important than the question, will you marry me? This question is more important than the question, what's my purpose? What am I doing on this earth? Why, why was I created? This question is more important than the question, what college should I go to or what city should I live in or what career path should I pursue? A.W. Tozer said this, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The answer to this question is so important because it's a matter of life and death. Because it impacts every decision that you will ever make. Jesus asked his disciples this question because he knew that they needed the answer to this question settled in their hearts if they were going to fulfill the plans he had for them once he left this earth and entrusted his church to them. So I have a question for you. If Jesus were standing here today and asked you, who do you say I am. How would you answer him today? The people of Caesarea Philippi would have probably said, Jesus, you're a good person, but Caesar is Lord. After all, the area was named after him and he had all the power. He was the leader of the most uh, powerful, influential empire in all of the world at that time. But how would you answer Jesus' question if he was standing up here asking you today. Well, I'll tell you how you would answer him. You would answer him by what you're investing your life in. Amen. Regardless of what you say, what you're investing your life in would be the true, real answer, wouldn't it? Because if your answer is, Jesus is my Savior and my Lord, then the follow-up question will be, well, is what? Is that reflected in what you're giving your affections and your passions to? Is the answer to that question reflected in what you are investing your life into? In our lives, people, even well-meaning people, will try and define who Jesus is for us, right? Some people will say, well, Jesus was all about loving people, so he would never judge you for what you think is right for you. Others will say, well, Jesus came to this earth uh, 
in order to prosper you and make you rich. He came to this earth so that you can have fancy cars and private jets. And that's why Jesus came to this earth. I've been a part of churches who preached and taught this. And if we're not careful and we don't answer that question for ourselves from the scriptures, okay, we will create a God in our own image that we call Jesus while the real Jesus is looking at us and say, that ain't me. Who you're serving isn't me. That Jesus is someone that you created out of the figment of your imagination because that is not the Jesus that you find in the Gospels. That is not the Jesus that the prophets in the Old Testament prophesied about. That ain't the Jesus that, that, that Paul talked about. That, that ain't the Jesus that the disciples were martyred for and died for. That's a figment of your imagination. And if we're not careful, we'll create a God in our own image. We'll create Him to sound the way we want Him to... Oh, you can clap. That was good. We'll create a God that sounds the way we want Him to sound. We'll create a God that never disagrees with us. We'll create a God that, 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 that justifies how we want to live our lives. And that's not a real God. That's not the God of the Bible. Amen? Let's keep reading in this passage, Mark chapter 8. We're in verse 31 now. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he was stating the matter plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning around and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Wow. Isn't it scary how quickly we can screw up? Isn't it scary how quickly we can mess everything up? In the same conversation, Peter went from giving the most profound answer when Jesus said, Who do you say I am? When he said, You are the Messiah, the anointed one absolute correct answer to, to in the same conversation he was being rebuked because he was being used by satan jesus had to tell him get behind me because your interests are in man's interests, not in god's interests here's the thing though because we get all over peter for this this rebuke from peter was born out of two things number one ignorance of god's will and a genuine love for god okay can I be honest with you today? If we're not grounded in the Scriptures, we can have a love for Jesus, but still be a stumbling block to His will and be used by Satan. Peter was in that moment, right? Peter loved Jesus, but was ignorant about what Jesus came to this earth to actually do. Okay? If Jesus were standing here today, would you be guilty of the same thing that Peter was guilty of. See, Peter was rebuking Jesus because he was telling the disciples that he was going to be betrayed and he was going to have to suffer and he was going to have to die. He was going to be rejected by all of the religious leaders and that he was going to be ultimately killed. And Peter didn't want his friend, his mentor, his rabbi to suffer this fate. And so that's why he went to Jesus. And furthermore, Peter and the disciples thought Jesus was their political, military 
leader who was going to free them from the grip of Rome by force. And so that's what they were thought Jesus came to this earth for. That's what they thought Jesus, uh, what, what he was organizing to do. He, they, they thought Jesus was their political military leaders. And Peter was like, how is a dead man going to free me from Rome? How is a dead man going to free me from the grip of this empire? It's impossible. Peter and the disciples had yet to connect suffering to glory. And we're having a tough time reconciling these two things. Jesus was explaining to the disciples his plan to bring freedom to humanity while they were only thinking of their personal freedom in that moment. Jesus was thinking about all eternity while the disciples were thinking about their temporary circumstances. Peter and the disciples wanted Jesus in that moment for selfish reasons. He and the other disciples wanted Jesus to make their lives better in the here and now. And not only did Peter and his disciples and the disciples want Jesus to bring them freedom from their current oppression, but they understood if there was rejection and suffering and death for their master, that same fate would be upon them too. Those same things would be a part of their future as well. So this was probably another factor in why Peter rebuked Jesus in that moment. I don't want to go through that. I've been following you for over three years, and that's what's going to happen. I don't want nothing to do with that. So many professing Christians only want Jesus for the purpose of making their lives easier, better, and more comfortable. And the moment some suffering or disappointment comes up in their lives, they live defeated. Or they just say, you know what? I don't want to do this Jesus thing. Is your mind set on God's interests or man's interests? You, you want to keep going or is this too much? Because it only gets more intense from here. <laughs> All right, verse 34, Mark 8. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. It's interesting to me that Jesus shifts the conversation. Actually, he rebukes Peter one-on-one. -on -one. Uh, actually, no, he, Peter comes to him and takes him over to the side one-on-one. -on -one. Then Jesus turns to the disciples and rebukes Peter in front of everybody. And, and then he shifts the conversation from just him and the disciples. And then he summons an entire crowd to hear him. It's interesting. But I think he wanted us to know that the cost of discipleship was not just for Peter was not just for the 12 disciples, but the cost of discipleship is for anyone who calls on the name of Jesus to be saved. Okay? 
So he summons the crowd to come closer, and then Jesus expounds on what a person looks like whose mind is set on God's interest rather than man's. And I think the most profound thing that Jesus says in this whole discourse comes in the form of another question. And this entire passage that we've looked at today is full of profound, thought-provoking question after question, isn't it? But this, what Jesus said here, might be the most profound question of all. When Jesus challenges the crowd and he challenges his disciples by asking them, what does it profit a man to gain the whole world, yet forfeit his soul? The great missionary Jim Elliott, who was martyred in Ecuador by the Aka Indians, while preaching the gospel to them, put it this way. He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. It's one of my favorite quotes, and that'll mess you up if you think about it. Let me tell you something, church. None of us, none of us will ever get close to gaining the entire world. Jesus said, what profit is it if you gain the whole world? None of us will ever get close to gaining the whole world. Yet we forfeit our soul for far less than that, don't we? When we read what Jesus says here, many of us assume it only applies to people who don't have any connection or relationship with Jesus. We assume that Jesus is talking about people who are sold out to the world. But there are many professing Christians and people who come to church who are forfeiting their souls for far less than what Jesus talked about in this passage. There are people who are forfeiting their soul on the altar of career. Succeeding in their career path is the dominating force that controls them. Their career is what they're using to try and validate their sense of importance. Uh, And they will compromise their values if it means advancing their career. Right, And they will step on people if it means they're going to advance in their career. Uh, If they're being honest with themselves, God is not as important to them as their career is. There's nothing wrong with pursuing a career. But if it becomes more important than your relationship with God, that thing, that career has become an idol in your life. There are people who are forfeiting their soul on the altar of intelligence. There are many people out there who think people who believe that there was a creator behind everything are using their faith as a crutch because of their lack of intelligence or understanding. And they believe that the intelligent belief is that we were all randomly formed from stardust with no intelligent design. There are people who are forfeiting their soul on the altar of ministry Right? There are pastors out there who are so worried about what others think about them or pleasing everyone that they don't preach what God wants them to preach anymore, but they preach a message that they know everybody will like. They preach a message that they know will not ruffle any feathers. Uh, there, there are ministers out there who are afraid to preach against sin because they simply want everyone to like them. And I, I want everybody to like me. I'm a people pleaser by nature. But you know what? There are times where I have to preach something uh, that might make you uncomfortable. 
there might be some times where I have to preach something where it might offend you or where it might be something that you don't agree with at the time. And at the end of the day, I have to be obedient to what God is saying to me. Amen. There are ministers who neglect their family because they're slaves to the urgent needs of everyone in their congregation besides their own family. And then we're surprised when our children despise the ministry and leave the church when they're older. There are people who are forfeiting their soul because of a love of money. Making money has become the dominating motivator of their life. Uh, Some people are dominated by love for money as a way to have control and to have security in their life. Uh, These people tend to not spend a lot of money and live modestly. But they do this in order to feel completely safe and secure in the world. They do this without trusting God. And hear my heart, I'm not saying that we shouldn't save or live modestly modestly or invest to create more money. I'm not saying we shouldn't do that, but what I am saying is that we, at the end of the day, we have to trust Jesus and not the security that money can provide for us. Others use money as a way to gain access into desired social circles to fulfill a need for power or belonging. Others are motivated to make lots of money so they can have control over people who have less than them. You guys know people like that. There are so many directions that money can take us that become an idolatrous path. And that's why I think Jesus preached against greed so often if you read through the Gospels. Is what dominates your thoughts God's interests or man's interests? Is what dominates your pocketbook God's interests or man's interests? Is what dominates your heart's affections and desires God's interests or man's interests? Is what you're pursuing hard after, does it have any eternal value at all? I brought a rope with me today. And I didn't make up this illustration on my own. I ripped it from somebody else. All my illustrations are ripped off of YouTube by someone else. And they probably ripped their illustration from someone else. But I brought a rope today to illustrate how lots of Christians live their lives. And Christian, could I have you help me out here a little bit? It's supposed to just come up. Just untangle it a little bit for me, brother. Thank you, sir. And I wanted to illustrate a point of how Christians, many Christians live their lives. And this rope, it's a hundred foot rope, but it signifies eternity. The, 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 the white part of this rope, it signifies eternity. And it goes on and on and on, but it's, it's an incomplete illustration because... I I can't use anything that goes forever, right, in this world. I can't have anything, but this thing can go on for 100 feet. And I want you to imagine in your minds that the white part, it represents eternity. It represents life after death. And and you guys see this red part right here? This represents our life here on earth. If we're lucky, if we're blessed, if we live a healthy life, we can live 75, 80, 85. Some people live longer. There's a few people that live to 100, even less than that, that live over 100. But even if you lived to 100 years old, 
in light of eternity, that's nothing. Mm -hmm. That is so temporary. I, I mean, this is nothing compared to forever and ever and ever and ever. We have 75, 80 years on this earth. It's like a, a speck of dust, and, and then we're gone. And we know that, especially if, you've, if you're a believer, if you've been in, in church, you understand eternity, you understand life after death, you understand heaven and hell, you understand that eternity is forever. And we, we have all tried to, to understand that concept, and we've gone crazy trying to think forever and ever and ever and ever. Or, how, how is that even possible? Like, how can, how can, we, how, how can eternity, how, how is that real? Like how, like, how can we live forever and ever and ever and we just... You know, we, we rile up all this anxiety and stress thinking about it. All of us who have been in the church understand the concept of life after death. But most of us, for being honest with ourselves, all of our decisions are made to preserve this part right here. And we neglect all of this over here. The way we spend our money, it's all about the red part here. The, the lack of urgency in sharing our faith with our friends and our coworkers and our neighbors. The relationships that we pursue, the, the affections and the things that we pursue in this world, it's all about this. The way we are just completely wiped out if something doesn't go, or if we don't get accepted in the school that we wanted to, to go to, or we don't get the promotion that we were believing for, if we don't get married to that person that we were convinced we were supposed to marry, we're so devastated and it completely knocks us out of the race and we completely forget that there is life after this and it's a lot longer than this. And I think it's important that we understand this. I think it's important that we as believers, that we live in light of eternity, because eternity is a lot longer than this. We think like, man, I can't overcome this sin because it's too hard. And because we view things that way, we completely neglect eternity. Church, it's not worth it. It is not worth it. And I don't want it to be too late for us. And I'm not just talking about heaven and hell. I'm talking about how we live our lives now. Amen. The decisions that we make, what we invest our money in, what, we, what relationships we invest in, how we are, are allowing, and I'm talking to myself, how we allow people to walk past us that we have influence with and we don't share the gospel with them. We don't talk to them about it. We go weeks and weeks and months and months without talking about the Lord to people that don't know Him. It's because we're living for that red part. If, if we were living for eternity, in light of eternity, there would be more urgency in which we lived our lives because we understand how short our life here on earth is. We understand how short our time here on earth is. If I could have the worship team come up. Boston, my son, my eight-year-old son, he's in a basketball league right now, and he's, he's pretty good. He's, he's excelling. Uh, in basketball, and, and uh, uh, it's, it's awesome to go. I love going and watching his games and cheering him on. It makes me want to get back on the court and play. <laughs> um, 
And so he, he's excelling at it. And a couple weeks ago, his coach emailed Priscilla and I, and he said, uh, hey, um, there's a, uh, a, a more advanced league that is missing a few of their players uh, this week. And, w- and we think that Boston could, uh, he's, he's on equal level with, with this more advanced league. And so we're wondering if he could sub in uh, for just this one day. The only caveat was that the game was on Sunday morning. And I ain't going to lie, Priscilla and I, we were flattered that they would ask Boston to play. And we tried to work it out. Like, we could have worked things out to where Priscilla could have taken Boston to the game. She could have come back, and she would have missed a little of service, but she could have been here for most of it. And we discussed it, and we were like, yeah, I think this could work, because we were so flattered. But we had to decide and make a decision that on Sunday mornings, the priority for us is going to be the local church. The priority for us on Sunday morning is going to be to have our kids and to have our family in the local church. And I tell you this story to tell you that pastors are humans too. We have to make choices about what our priorities are going to be as well. Just because I preach for a living and I study the Word of God for a living doesn't mean I don't have to prioritize things in my life. And I don't have to constantly fight the battle of living for the red part of that rope. I have desires as well. I have struggles as well. So I have to constantly fight to live in light of eternity, just like you do. Are the decisions you make every day a positive reflection of who Jesus is to you? Are you living for the red part of the rope or the white part of the rope? Are you living in light of eternity? Are you just living for the temporary life that we live now? Because even Jesus said, do not store up treasures here on earth, but store up treasures in heaven. And we do that by what we invest our lives in. Because at the end of the day, we can't take our clothes with us. We can't take our cars with us. We can't take our, our homes with us. We can't, take, we, we can't take our degrees with us. We can't take our money with us. All we can take are the people that we impacted here on earth. That's all we can take. God wants more for you, and He wants more from you. Will we decide today that we're going to live in light of eternity. No longer are we going to just live for the short time here on earth and store up treasures here on earth. Amen? Amen. Let's pray.